Hello, and welcome to the Sweet Tea Shakespeare Hours, where we spend time well by spending it together. We're so glad you're here. Sweet Tea Shakespeare is a theater and music company based in North Carolina that seeks to gather diverse communities around a common table to delight in story, song, and stagecraft. This podcast is kind of like our digital campfire, a place where we can come together to share ideas and tell stories. Our podcast has four distinct ways of gathering and sharing those ideas and stories. You're currently listening to After Hours, a series of candid discussions about politics and pop culture, and occasionally their intersections with Shakespeare. For the best listening experience, we recommend a stiff drink or a strong cup of coffee. So grab your favorite late night beverage and settle in. Things are about to get lively. Hello, sir. Oh, hello. How you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Uh, I'm all right. <laughs> and it's uh, 7.45 in the morning, doing all right, you know, having the day begin with a wonderful podcast. Very exciting. Yeah. What you been up to? Well, um, nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, working on a couple of different writing projects and then day-to-day life, doing my best not to pay too much attention to... The horrible, horrible news situation in America because there's really nothing you can do about it. So, uh, try not to just wear your mask and uh, sanitize your hands, friends. Sure, do that. The lockdowns are coming. That's my prediction. Uh, Yeah. Thanksgiving until about January 15th. Well, and then the responses to the lockdown are coming too, which is going to be just horrendous. Like. I don't know. This year is rough. (laughs) To say the least. I mean, whatever. It's not an original observation, but uh, it deserves to be observed. There we are. Yeah. When things blow up, I'm sure we'll have things to say about it. Until then, I'm just holding my breath. Yeah. Yeah, when things blow up and we're doing this podcast into rocks in the middle of an irradiated hole... That'll that'll be fun. Uh, anyway, on that happy note, let's uh, talk about the first of our uh, subjects here today. We're talking about uh, Auntie Donna's big old house of fun. Auntie Donna. Okay. So what is that? Uh, so it's this is a it's a Netflix show um, uh, focused on the work of a group that's been around a while, uh, like years and years um it's a what would you call it? it's like a it's like a it's a it's comedy a troupe. show yeah, it's, yeah well the show is a, a sketch show the troupe is a comedy troupe slash mm-hmm. kind of band slash musical group a lot of their stuff has music like the, we'll talk about it but it, yeah it, and they're australian they're too. they are they're from that continent and uh so i didn't know anything about it i've not heard of these people before in my life and I was poking around on Netflix the other night looking for things, and, and uh, Netflix suggested that I tune in. And so I did, and it was, sh- uh, it was a shocking experience. What was shocking about it? Um, so, okay. So it's, it's, it's a comedy show. I watch a lot of comedy. I watch a lot of stand-up. I, I try to stay up on SNL. And uh, this is weirder than all of that. It feels, on some level, 
like um, like a like a sketch show that you would catch on Comedy Central, like a Chappelle show or something like that. But uh, this is uh, different and weirder, and certainly more absurd. And uh, it's not. I wouldn't say it's grounded in reality. It's another style. I mean, it's nominally yeah. based in 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 uh, sort of somewhat realistic scenarios, but then uh, well, about every thirty seconds, it blows up into something totally absurd. Absurdist. Just totally absurd. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely an absurdist uh, kind of comedy. Um, I, I feel like there's a number of different sort of antecedents and some sort of categorizations that you can that it falls into. Um, broadly speaking, I think that the fact that it comes from Australia is, first of all, of some note. It, it bears uh, some similarities. Um, to another uh, comedy sort of group or, or thing from that part of the world, though not Australia specifically. That's uh, Flight of the Concords from New Zealand. Um, it feels in keeping with, with them to a certain degree. Like, uh, it, you know, um, the, the music, as you mentioned, uh, you know, that is a similarity. Also, you know the the sort of absurdism of it all is in keeping with that as well as a similarity though this really ramps that up a lot as far as like the absurdism goes i i feel like that's really of a piece with um I, it verges almost into anti-comedy sometimes like uh and you know the extremity of of the absurdism along with almost a sort of uh, hostility is not the right word, but you know, uh, <laughs> it, it uh, you know it, it goes to a place where it's almost unpleasant sometimes, um, and and that's again in keeping with a, a certain comedic tone, like uh, not quite to Tim and Eric uh, lengths, but um, definitely is in keeping with like uh, comedy Bang Bang. Just Scott Ackerman's um, podcast that turned into a talk show on IFC or a parody of talk show. And Scott Ackerman is, in fact, a producer on uh, Auntie Donna's big old house of fun. Um, and if you're familiar with his show at all, there's a uh, thing that they do. Um, you know, where it's like the introduction of a premise and then you take it to it's absurdist sort of um, extreme heightening it uh, and really break reality in a way that's almost meta, you know, um, where there's uh, this, you know, you, you have sort of self-consciously taken everything past a point of being believable and yet they don't break character, you know? Um, and that's a, that's a tricky place to be comedically. But they pull it off really well. It's very funny. Um, and they're, you know, a winning group. As you say, they've been around for a while, so they have that kind of, you know, good dynamic that's clearly been established over many hours of stage time, one would assume. 
Yeah, right? I um, I I so some of the things that stand out to me for this, um, so it it feels theatrical. Uh, the the characters are big and broad, which you would expect, but but also they're making some interesting stagecraft choices that that do go meta from time to time, like they break the what you know the the equivalent of the fourth wall uh, of the mm-hmm. screen uh, multiple times. They're doing things that that I have seen done on stage, uh, like they there are three three of these actors, and occasionally they have guests join them. But they, yeah, they, the actors' names are Mark Samuel Bonanno, Broden Kelly, and Zachary Ruane. Yeah, and they they what's what's uh, pretty impressive is that they keep the constraints on those three uh, most of the time. So if they have a sketch that they write for four people or five people or six people, it usually only takes the three of them to pull it off. Now, occasionally they have guests. Ed Helms is a producer on the show, and he's appeared. Professional wrestler character appeared. Uh, and they have occasional extras, uh, but most of the the principal acting is those three. And so when they need a fourth, like in one of the sketches I watched last night, they they pop the actor over into another character and like make the original character a mannequin, which I think is genius yeah. and an example of yeah. like a theatrical choice that I would have right. seen sort of in the in the Shakespeare original practices, Cirque. Uh, style you know well and also yeah and there's again a very sort of meta thing happening there where you know they're acknowledging the jankiness of it i mean this show really does um roll on its uh you know constant sort of surprising you you know uh from moment to moment there's always some new way that they heighten things or some uh way that they're undermining the premise in some basic way and uh you know there's a very stream of consciousness sort of um aspect to the whole thing that uh they manage to keep it moving and they keep the ball up in the air and that's really the trick with something like this right you like can't if the energy drops or that sort of sense of uh um sort of ingenuity or uh or, you know, newness, whatever, uh, flags, then the whole thing could fall apart. But that doesn't, that doesn't happen. No, it's, um, so we've talked about this before. I mean, and this was, this was drilled into me, at least on the directing side in graduate schools, you know, stay ahead of your audience. That's the number one secret. And, Mm -hmm. uh, even good TV shows, uh, good movies do not do this. They, they, um, they lull whatever. So, and it particularly can be challenging on the comedy side because um, once you establish your bag of tricks, uh, as a writer, as a director, as an actor, it's sort of done. And so it it it's it the masters do it uh, by having interesting content, like maintaining interesting content throughout. Um, mm-hmm. This this one's really interesting because it does it in content. Sure, it's that absurdist like this is going in a different direction every 45 seconds uh, in a way that sort of pulls you in. But it's also doing it in terms of form. Um, and by that, I mean, like, it's it's these sketches are structured uh, intentionally to sort of, as you said, it's a stream of consciousness thing, but it's turning the corner. That's the comedy term, right? It's turning the corner all the time. It's these sharp turns. Uh, and you are the audience, the watcher, the viewer, are, are left to catch up 
Um, yeah. And and what it what I think is is really great about it is like it'll have a good idea, right? It's a lot of these episodes open with a song or something, and you are say a minute forty five or two and a half minutes into this song, and uh, it cuts it. It it changes. It it's a complete change of direction, leaves you wanting more of the song. Uh, or leaves you wanting the old, you know, the old hook, but it doesn't give it to you. It just moves, plows right ahead. Yeah, that's true. And one of the other things that's interesting about the show is that there is, a, you know, as absurdist and uh, freeform as it is, each episode does actually sort of have a central idea or theme that it's picking at that it keeps coming back to. Like the first one is about how, I mean, and this gives you some sense of the absurdity of the of the show, which should tell you if it's for you or not. Uh, they get angry at their uh, the three of them live together in a house theoretically, and they get angry at their fourth roommate, who is their dishwasher, who has uh, started speaking to them for the first time and demanding that they pay her, uh, voiced by Kristen Schaal. Uh, and they get so angry at her that they put her out on the street and need to find a fourth roommate. And so that's nominally what the show is, uh, what that episode is uh, centered around them having to find a new roommate to replace their dishwasher, who they hate now. And uh, it, and all of the people who they're interviewing are ridiculous and, you know, crazy, uh, and also played by the three core actors. Uh, as well so you know there, there's no attempt to you know and in that there's a subversion of uh narrative in sitcoms it's like this extreme parody of a sitcom in some ways um at least in that episode uh and then you know while constantly pointing to and and recognizing how they're undermining the thing um you know, a person's tolerance for that kind of uh, <laughs> kind of thing is going to vary, and you know, um, there are moments when you may not be in the mood for it. But they, their energy is so high, is the thing. Like then uh, the sort of you know um, innovations that they come up with from moment to moment are constantly very surprising and funny. So it all works quite well. It has a lot. It reminds me of um, you know again like the a lot in common with uh, the th the thing that separates it from Flight of the Concords particularly is an energy that's very similar to sort of American um, uh, weird comedy and uh, comedy out of sort of the improv communities in in America. You know, Scott Ackerman's Comedy Bang Bang is an improv-based show, um, and he brings in a lot of his uh, sort of regular players from that that show to be in this uh but it also reminds me a lot of say tim robinson's i think you should leave have you seen that show jeremy i'm putting it um, on my list right now i would do it it's a uh it's another sketch comedy show on netflix from um tim robinson was <laughs> for a minute on saturday night live as a cast member but he was really just too weird for that show he had been a writer on the show for a couple of years and then when uh when he was no longer a cast member on that left and went on to make the show detroiters which was a funny show on comedy central but then and uh did for netflix this thing called the characters which was like a sketch based uh 
show that was given to a bunch of different uh, comic performers where each of them got a half hour. And uh, that was just bananas, his uh, sketch show on that. And I think that that was the seed from which I think you should leave grew at Netflix. And it's interesting at Netflix, they really are uh, fostering a, a very, I think they're trying to compete a little bit with like the Adult Swim kind of comedy over there, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, again, that kind of aggressive <laughs> um, almost anti-comedic yeah, that, that's, that's, sensibility. Um, it reminds me of some of that stuff, particularly the cartoon side. Um, on a like a, a, it's trying to do with with human beings what, um, but some of those more subversive shows are trying to do, um, uh, but have to do it cartoon right wise, right? So, um, sure. And, and that's why I say is another another sort of source of delight for me in this show is how physical the actors are. Uh, in mm-hmm. their pursuit of the choices, it, it it they look trained to me. At least two of the three of them do. Um, Mark and, and uh, Zach look phys- like have lots of physical training behind behind them. Yeah. Um, well, and it's funny too because <laughs> I I can see that it, you know the 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 number of different influences on this show is is fascinating to me. It also comes out of you know, it it has understandably a very Australian sort of energy to it, and it feels like there's maybe, you know, the Auntie Donna title feels like it's a nod towards like the uh, the kind of Australian children's entertainment that I feel <laughs> like there has been a lot of over the last ten to fifteen years, like the Wiggles and stuff like that. Um, like there is the sort of faintest suggestion of this being like a children's show in some ways, you know, the presentational nature of the way that they talk to the camera and the songs, you know, um, but it's like literally it's it's like the Wiggles took meth basically is what this would be, (laughs) um, in terms of how, you know, insane it gets and also, you know, these turns into really dark corridors you know, or cul-de-sacs. Not corridors. That'd be a hallway. That doesn't make any sense. Um, anyway, it's it's a funny show. I would give it a give it a look. And if this sounds, you know, after our description of it, like something you would absolutely hate, then you probably would. <laughs> but if it I, I agree great, with you. It, it, it's best in, in small doses. Two two episodes at a time is what I can, what I can do. It's like a it's a nice little palate cleanser for the day. Yeah, it's good to dip in and into. I mean, you know, there is a point where it's sort of you know weird. Nothing actually matters. Sort of ethos can become not what you want at a certain point. So. You gotta be in the right mood for it, I guess. Also, Some I would just say um, it's 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 uh, maybe maybe you want to screen it before your kids see it, and screen oh, it before you yeah. watch it with your parents. That's what I would say. Yeah. It might yeah, make you more a... uncomfortable with those people in the room. Yeah, it's not for sensitive uh, audiences, definitely. Um, but you know, otherwise, have at it. 
Have at it. Have at it. Our mission at Sweet Tea Shakespeare is to bring communities together. Regardless of where you come from, we consider you part of our community, one that supports each other no matter what. You can become a part of this important support system through our Patreon, where we make magic well by making it together with you. Our Patreon supporters are folks who join our commitment to community building by making a monthly pledge that goes first and foremost to the people at Sweet Tea Shakespeare. Your contribution inspires us to inspire others. And we hope you can join that work today by visiting patreon.com slash sweetteashakes. All right, next we're talking about our, our NaNoWriMo November Writing Month project. We are. Um, so we're uh, really checking in here. Uh, we're in the middle of writing some things that uh, we're not ready to share with everybody, but figured it was an opportunity to discuss uh, where it is that we are and what we're doing here. For those of you who've been following along, we're, uh, or haven't been, perhaps more appropriately, we are, Jeremy and I have been collaborating for a while on a script um, that is sort of a sequel or that is, in fact, a sequel to um, the Henry IV plays and Henry V. And uh, this is, the show is called Falstaff's Son. And it is uh, based on the premise that Falstaff's page, in, um, who we meet in Henry IV, part two, and who goes on to Henry V is, in fact, uh, Falstaff's illegitimate son who, uh, through various machinations, uh, he has uh, gotten raised with a degree of uh, respectability and, um, you know, is raising now himself for a few years without the child's knowledge that... Uh, Falstaff is his father, and all with the help of uh, Henry, um, which is sort of begrudgingly given. And then, uh, so we sort of want to look at the events. We're, we're happening, the first half of the show is anyways contemporaneous with the events of uh, Henry the Fourth, Part Two, and Henry V, and then we will jump forward in time in Act Two to uh, look at interactions between Hal, or adult Henry V, and the boy as they're both older. So <laughs> that's the long explanation. Then we're sort of putting together Act One still. Yeah, we are. That's yeah. Yes, I took a look at some things this week. I did technically write some stuff. Yeah, me too. But you know, but uh, you know, it's it's a it's a busy month. It's been a crazy couple weeks. Yeah. I, I imagine most people go through this. Uh, and yeah, can I just say, NaNoWriMo, making it in November is a perverse idea. It's like <laughs> the end of the year, and you have like tons of holidays and stuff. Why would that be the month? Do it in March. Anyway, keep going. Sorry. No, that's, <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, t tell us more about what scene you're working on and, and, yeah, and your thoughts about how you're moving forward. So... Um, the thing that I'm in the middle of right now is the scene 
where in the play we meet uh, Dal Tersheet, who uh, in our telling of this is the boy's mother uh, with Falstaff. And uh, we... <laughs> um, Our, our premise, uh, the idea is that, that the, uh, the boy doesn't know that Falstaff and uh, especially Dahl are his parents, but that that's a fact that is known by certain other people in that community, and it's sort of the unspoken thing that hangs over a lot of their interactions. Um, and so... Anyway, the introduction of Dahl is an interesting thing. You know, in Henry the Fourth, Part Two, uh, she and Falstaff have. You know, she is a prostitute, um, but it's clear that she and Falstaff have an affectionate relationship with each other, mm-hmm. uh, and are. You know, depending on how you play the scene or read it, you know, in, in fact, in love, and so we really sort of jumped into that in a big, big way. And her introduction, I, I think, uh, yeah, it's a tricky thing. You want to be, it needs to be, uh, it's a complicated character, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we want to see the relationship between her and Falstaff. Uh, you know, both of them are of a sort of um, liberal sensibility when it comes to uh you know their um sexual favors and willingness to share that with uh share them with you know anyone who's taking uh but also that they care about each other quite a bit and um you know she is a person who through circumstance and living in the times that they're living in uh you know, is is a victim in many ways. Uh, in at the end of Henry the Fourth, Part Two, in the original play, she is pregnant. Uh, at the end of that, with uh, uh, who would be someone who would be a half brother to our main character, the boy, um, and not Falstaff's kid. Uh, which is so. You know, this gives you some idea of the of the situation that that she finds herself in. And uh, so, you know, in, in this scene anyways, I'm trying to give a sense of her and Falstaff's sort of on-again, off-again relationship and the openness of it. Uh, and also it's about the boy seeing the woman who is his mother without knowing it for the first time, which uh, will eventually put together and then there is an interesting antagonistic relationship that we're developing as well uh between the boy and francis francis who uh is a named character in henry the fourth part one who's a uh a servant an indentured servant um at the tavern uh working for mistress quickly uh essentially making him a slave to them and uh where in this scene uh shortly after the boy's arrival uh into the group he's giving um 
he's sort of giving him advice and orienting him, but there's a definite sense of uh, resentment for the boy. You know, like I think Francis is very unhappy with his life and the situation that he's in being an indentured servant, which is really a pretty unfair, horrendous, uh, you know, position to occupy. And he sees the boy as, uh, you know, someone in a service position, but who clearly has advantages he doesn't have. You know, the boy comes from a nominally noble background or respectable in any case, you know, is on a path towards uh, a more respectable place in life, being the uh, page or, you know, apprentice to a knight, even though that knight is false down. Um, and so there's some resentment there. And eventually uh, we want to play with the idea that uh, Francis becomes aware of uh, the boy's actual parentage and um, not so, you know, subtly at first and then eventually not so suddenly hints to him and makes fun of him because of that, with the boy sort of not having any sense or context for what's going on. And we want to build to eventually is that getting to a place where Francis is physically threatening to the kid and uh, threatens also to reveal the, you know, secret of his parentage to him. Um, and in the midst of that uh, confrontation around that, Falstaff will intervene and, in fact, murder Francis. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, probably enlist Quickly's help in getting rid of the body and whatnot. So uh, adding a sort of degree of uh, darkness and intrigue into this and also giving the boy something he can look back on, you know, feeling like, oh, I was saved from, uh, you know, harm by Falstaff, but also having that be a more complicated moment as well. So that's all laying the groundwork for those eventual revelations here. So that's kind of what we're wrestling with right now. So, and I'm uh, going to, well, I'm, I'm starting to look ahead at, at uh, one of our big fir first big sort of time geography jumps um heading to france seeing yeah what that looks like and um the 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 thing i've been thinking a lot about this is so um uh, is just going back to how how um henry v in particular is really adept at that because of the use of the chorus and that's going to factor into our storytelling later but um one of the things about that that play in particular is is it 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 sort of permits film and TV writing in a way that some of those other plays don't, um, that they feel more like plays and that feels more like a movie. Um, and so uh, one of the things I think that affords us, and it's certainly something I've noticed as I've been digging in, is like we can, we can get away with, with scenes that would otherwise be too short for theater. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it does. It definitely does. And it is a weird feature of Henry V. You know, um, that makes that possible. Not for nothing that there have been, you know, multiple fairly high profile film adaptations of Henry V over the years when many other history plays have not been treated on film. And also weird that Henry V would be because it's the third in a trilogy, really. I mean, arguably the fourth, if you want to 
get picky about it, but you know, the third film about uh, the third story about how, and it, out of context, there are lots of reasons why it kind of doesn't make sense to tell that story by itself. And yet people do that on film frequently. And it's because I think of what you're talking about, mm -hmm. the chorus character in particular, uh, gives you this, uh, framing device that is especially filmic and does, yes, give you the ability to dip in and out, which we are using a lot. So it makes this, you know, I, I think that that was part of what attracted us, honestly, to the project was the idea that we could do something that felt more modern in sensibility because it had been built into the play in this way that was kind of unique. Um, you know, it's not that Henry V is the only play that has a chorus in it, but it gets used a little bit more frequently than Shakespeare does in his other plays, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting. I always go back to sort of thinking of the way that Branagh did it in uh, his Henry V adaptation, where um, the chorus is dressed in modern dress, right? Uh, like his uh, uh, opening monologue is delivered to camera uh, walking through a soundstage with, you know, all of the props and you know, uh, tech stuff around him and then uh, sort of bursts onto the set at or onto the scene at the end of that. And um, it really does lend itself well to that. And our sort of chorus monologue at the beginning of our thing is a nod uh, or is in conversation with, with that opening monologue in Henry V in many ways. So, yeah, to all of everything you said, <laughs> that uh, is an interesting sort of aspect of this we can we do jump around in time and space much more easily or or maybe it's not even easier though it's like play, the plays always do jump around in in space we do, we're doing it in time in a way that's more ostentatious but i guess in drawing attention to itself it feels oddly more i don't know modern mm. All right. Well, next time we'll have whatever we have. Yeah, we are making progress. Yeah, well, that feels good. We are. Uh, it, it is moving forward. So going in the right direction. That's right. that's what you want. All right. It's time for sandwich reviews. Oh, sandwich reviews. I think these are. This is the last review of of the ones we wrote many moons ago, and so we now actually have to start eating sandwiches again. Yeah, I I kind of caught up there already. Um, you had been more uh, on the ball than me when we left this. Uh, and the last two reviews you had finished, and I hadn't, and I'd only gotten like halfway through one of them before we abandoned it for various reasons. And so, um, anyway, this today uh, represents a somewhat more recent review for me as well uh, with Chick-fil-A. That's what we're talking about in our chicken category. All right, here, here comes my review. Uh, my points are as follows. Flavor, nine. Mouthfeel, three. Adjoining produce, three. Bread, one. Meat, one. Adjoining sauces and condiments, zero. Sandwich aesthetic, one. Complimentary items, three. To contextual sleaze, three. Appraisal of the cost, three. Personalities, nine to the sandwich, three. Nature of the sandwiches lingering in the memory, minus three. For a total of 27 points out of 50. 
And here's what I have to say about it. Chick-fil-A's politics and mine do not match up. Years ago, when the controversy over the Kathy family's support of anti-LGBTQ plus initiatives and possible bias against queer employees made national news and resulted in a semi-coordinated nationwide boycott, boycott and impressive counter-boycott by members of the evangelical Christian communities, I took to the social media to let the evangelicals have it. I called them bigots, which I think they still mostly are, and over the stupidity of creating a culture war over a sandwich. And while I still do not agree with Chick-fil-A's policies, I do think the company recovered from the angst of that cultural moment, not only intact, but about as clean-smelling as chicken shit could possibly smell. And here's the thing. I don't think their PR speak or crisis management was the thing that did this. Instead, and this is an absolute anomaly in modern American chain food, they did it with product and personality. Of course, the chicken didn't change. It shouldn't have. That chicken is damn good compared to every other competitor on the market. They don't have the powder spray batter like Wendy's and McDonald's. They don't have the gallon of grease of a KFC. In the South, Chick-fil-A's nominal competitor, Zaxby's, has a very good chicken, but it tends to feel heavy, always too much. Chick-fil-A's sandwich is simple. Bun, fresh chicken, hand-battered, pickle. What else do you want? And the waffle fries, despite no longer being cooked in peanut oil, are still delicious, especially when ordered well done. Chick-fil-A has the industry's best selection of sauces, although the McDonald's sweet and sour sauce is the industry's best. And all of them match up with the chicken and fries incredibly well. Chick-fil-A's service is also more than a little remarkable. Unlike virtually every other entry in this competition, Chick-fil-A's service is present and mindful. I am greeted warmly. I am looked in the eye. I am waited on like it's their job. They clear my trash. They wipe the table under me. They offer to refill my beverage. They take care. And not in the absent-minded, hurried, and harried way we've come to expect at every other fast food establishment. And it's here where I think Chick-fil-A has been able to pull off what Chipotle and Papa John's have not and will not soon pull off. Transcendence over controversy. I still think Chipotle, disease, and pretension are somewhat synonymous. Papa John's and racism are still synonymous. But Chick-fil-A has somewhat moved on by having a quality product and a quality approach to service. Don't get me wrong. The sandwich is still slathered in guilt. It is just the tasty present kind. So um, just to let everybody know, again, Jeremy and I do not read each other's reviews before we... Uh, do this so interestingly we there is some overlap in our approach to our reviews here uh and some of our observations that is entirely natural i want to tell everybody uh and honest so here's my um breakdown on that uh flavor I gave it eight points mouthfeel four adjoining produce three bread three Meat, four. Adjoining sauces and condiments, two. Sandwich aesthetic, four. Complimentary items, one. Contextual sleeves, three. Appraisal of the cost, four. Personalities nigh unto the sandwich, three. And the nature of the sandwich is lingering in memory, zero, for a total of 39 out of 50 points. 
Um, so let's address the proverbial elephant in the room. In 2012, journalists wrote about donations from a Chick-fil-A charitable arm, revealing that it had given millions of dollars to have a dozen different anti-LGBTQ groups. That position was more central to the missions of some of those organizations than others, but at least one was explicitly devoted to making gay people straight. That group was Exodus, to which Chick-fil-A had given $1,000. People boycotted the company. There was a counter-reaction by Chick-fil-A supporters, and certain politicians announced that the restaurant was not welcome in their areas. In response, Chick-fil-A walked a careful line, not really apologizing, while also not mounting a full-throated defense. But they did announce that they would stop giving money to anti-gay organizations, and this turned out not to be entirely true. They still gave some money to a handful of groups that technically disapprove of homosexuality and gender nonconformity, though none that are specifically focused on those issues. That is up until last year when the company announced a new focus in their charitable work with donations going solely to issues of homelessness, education, and hunger, thereby trying to sidestep the issue permanently. Um, but since those issues first came to light, the company has sought to deflect the negative attention as much as possible, and whatever they're doing seems to have been pretty effective, because while Chick-fil-A can still elicit strong responses from politically engaged folks on all sides, most people seem unaware that there's a controversy at all. And since 2012, the chain has not only become more successful, regularly topping popularity rankings of fast food companies in America, while growing ever more wildly profitable, no small feat, as they are uh, operating one day less a week than all their competitors in religious observance of the Christian Sabbath. So anyway, we're reviewing it. And there's a question as to how much to factor all that stuff into our assessment. Given the parameters of our ranking system, the answer would appear to be not much, but it seems like something we should acknowledge, and so we have. That's what this is. Anyway, it's a pretty good sandwich. That may sound like faint praise, but it's not nothing. There's an admirable consistency to the quality of the food at Chick-fil-A, and they really carved out a nice niche for themselves. The national furor surrounding the brand seems like a lot to place on the shoulders of a sandwich that is just pretty good but it's not the food that makes the brand popular, or not just the food in any case. Chick-fil-A is ostentatiously committed to good service with a regimented Disneyland-style set of rules about cleanliness and friendliness. They pay at above-market wages, and their staff is expected to be smart, fastidious, and helpful. Their restaurants are clean, and their service works with admirable speed and efficiency. It's almost as if the company made a conscious decision to combat their, in some quarters, toxic public perception by being extremely well-run and objectively better at customer service than most of their competitors. Uh, it's like that kid in a class who's always engaged, articulate, and respectful, who turns in neat, grammatically correct, well-composed essays that seems to subtly, or not so subtly, assert arguments about the supremacy of Western culture, quote-unquote, in ways that are extremely discomforting. Anyway, on to my recent trip to Chick-fil-A. Uh, their make-the-trains-run-on-time ethos was particularly well on display with a long drive through line that was being serviced by two employees walking from car to car, taking orders remotely. They took my order, a chicken sandwich meal, and a peach milkshake with friendly efficiency. 
The line moved extremely fast. Payment was taken by yet another remotely mobile employee in the name of keeping the line moving quickly, and I got my food much more speedily than one would have anticipated given the size of the line. I pulled over to eat. The sandwich was delivered in a silver bag that insulated the sandwich and retained moisture, keeping it hot and making the bread soft and pillowy. The heat makes a difference, and combined with the crispy on the outside but still moist chicken, it delivers a better-than-average experience. I appreciate the lack of condiments and toppings other than a couple of pickles, which shows a sense of confidence about what they're offering. I'm not a fan of the Chick-fil-A waffle fries, but that milkshake was really good with real ice cream and actual pieces of fruit in it, so points for that. Listen, the pickle juice brined breaded southern chicken sandwich didn't really have a national profile on fast food menus until Chick-fil-A's successful expansion. Now there are several versions of it at Popeye's, KFC, and McDonald's in addition to or instead of the chicken sandwiches that they used to have. So when you create a category on the national fast food menu, you know you did something. There is a lot that is extremely admirable about the brand, and their food is good while not being quite great in the way that its most enthusiastic partisans claim. But for all that, it's difficult to shake the uneasy feelings evoked by the franchise's social positions, which is why its lingering in the memory gets a zero from me. So, we landed in uh, very similar places, actually, <laughs> with regard to Chick-fil-A. Yeah, I think, I think you're, you're right on. I mean, the... Uh, when you're we're talking about customer delight, which is part, come, keeps coming up in, in a lot of our reviews, Chick-fil-A is the industry leader on in fast food on customer delight. Uh, there are some others in the conversation. A Chipotle is in the conversation, um, but it, it really angles things in a different way. So both of them are interested in environment. Um, Chipotle is, is more about a sort of authenticity of product and customizability of product. Chick-fil-A is doing it, it's just customer service and um, what they would call, I think, Southern hospitality, which is really just hospitality. And your point about it being a sort of Disneyland environment, I mean, Disney is the other sort of cultural leader is, is across industries about this creating culture, uh, customer delight experience. Uh, mm-hmm. And they, there are case studies on Chick-fil-A about how they're able to pull it off. Um, and they, they build that brand loyalty, which is actually the reason I think a bunch of evangelicals stood up in counter protest is, you know, like, okay, I, I do think the politics are at play, right? Uh, and, and evangelicals have a lot to answer about with regard to the, the, uh, the se- sexual politics part of this, right? And it was definitely part of the mix. But this act, this event, the 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 PR crisis that this was with the the donations going to anti-LGBTQ groups, has happened other places, and and there have been boycotts and reactions, and there have been counter boycotts and reactions, and none of them reached the national profile that Chick Fil A did. Uh, before you could argue Chick Fil A or or while Chick Fil A was on on. Uh, was ascending. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was happening in the midst of their ascension. And over the last eight years since that began, that ascension has been unbroken. Anyway, continue. Well, I, um, my argument would be that um, Christian evangelicals, 
uh, and whatever other groups you want to tie into that. That's my brand name for, for those folks. Um, don't step up in the counter protests in the way that they do if they don't feel strongly about the sandwich and the experience. Yeah, I think that's if, true. Th th this doesn't have, in other words, nobody is going to come and and let's say take the take the political and financial part of this and apply it to McDonald's, apply it to Wendy's, apply it to Chipotle or any of the other places we look at, Jimmy John's and Papa John's, which both have in recent years uh, some political yeah, things, own. right? Yeah, sure. That sure. counter protest does not happen anywhere else, and the reason it happens at Chick Fil A is because those people have literally made disciples in the marketing sense, apostles in the marketing sense. Who are who will live and die for that sandwich right do you know what i mean well okay yes i do and i do think that the uh quality of the product which is good you know um it, it is a good quality fast food sandwich um and also i think more importantly the user experience is a big part of that i do not think that that's all it is though i mean i the reason that those communities came out so strongly in support of chick-fil-a is that chick-fil-a's public brand is very uh you know uh openly christian that mm -hmm. that is in a way that is pretty unusual there are other you know national or or regional brands that that do have a sort of um you know uh an openly sort of uh religious aspect to them or connection to them. I'm thinking particularly of In-N-Out, the California burger chain, which uh, is more subtle in many respects with its uh, religious underpinnings, but does have them and actually has some interesting parallels uh, to Chick-fil-A in terms of their service and, um, and uh, employee sort of uh, standards, which is interesting. Um, but Chick-fil-A is the most sort of obvious or open about it on a, on at, at the scale that they mm. exist. Uh, you know, as I mentioned in my review, they stay closed on Sundays because it's the Sabbath. And, um, you know, their uh, sort of reference to... Um, they pulled back on this a little bit in recent years, actually, <laughs> Uh, but in the past, there's been a more sort of open uh, sort of some of the religious aspects of, of or some religious elements have been more open in their marketing or connection to the place like, you know, uh, Bible verses and whatnot being um, printed on various things. And that that exists less. But that that whole we don't do this on Sunday thing is a big part mm -hmm. of their, you know, it's it's an inescapable thing. And so. The fact that they are this like public, they have this public Christian identity combined with the fact that they um, offer, they have this real effort, you know, emphasis on um, excellence of service and consistency uh, is, I think, the thing that really generates that loyalty. Um, and, you know, in the marketplace, those are the the user experience that they give is um it, it it's notable it's remarkable like if you go there you know they're solicitous they're they take that sort of make the customer leave happy um sort of principle 
and apply. I mean, it, with small things, but it, I, I remember going to Chick-fil-A in the past with my kids and there being some sort of issue with, oh, we didn't know that we could get an ice cream cone instead of a toy and our thing. And it's impossible to trade that even though, or not even trade it, but like, can we do this even though we didn't like do the right thing or whatever? And they were like, yeah, here, have an ice cream cone. You know, um, you know, that kind of, let's make sure these people are happy kind of thing in along with the, you know, I, I can only imagine that they're trained along with the, well, what I was going to say is along with the sort of focus on cleanliness and, and just good service. I can only imagine the training regimen and the monitoring that their employees go through is, is, uh, you know, very exacting, but they also pay better than a lot well, and of this other is, places. This is what it, uh, this is what it comes down to for me. Uh, they do pay better. You do get better service. There is better training. And so in Fayetteville, I will say that this is true. You can drive by, right down my road is a Chick-fil-A first, and uh, there's a Taco Bell, and there's a McDonald's. And it is always a case uh, that you could see a line extending around the building of cars, a line right. of cars. And it is always true that the line at the Taco Bell and the McDonald's is long because the service is slow and and inept on some level, um, mm -hmm. and that the Chick-fil-A line is long because people love to eat there. And it moves fast. It does. That's the other thing. Their long lines move fast. And here's something that's interesting. You know, what's just from a sort of analysis perspective uh it's striking to me that the things about chick-fil-a that make it problematic um which is to say it's supportive causes that are you know rooted in their religious beliefs that are um you know problematic that are uncomfortable that are not in step with uh the times at least in america culturally uh which have given them so much trouble uh, you know, those are the same principles that, at least in their in the company's own conception of themselves, undergird their commitment to the things that are good about them. You know, um, their sense of you know offering people good service and treating employees well is uh, you know in their telling of it rooted in you know a commitment to their values as dictated by their religious beliefs. Uh, so, you know, it is sort of this fascinating <laughs> thing. And, uh, you know, that that it's the thing that distinguishes them from, from a McDonald's, for instance, which has always, like, put an emphasis on efficiency, but doesn't have, like, a driving, you know, central... Uh, belief system or value system that's rooted in anything particularly, you know, other than sort of American capitalism. Um, uh, and, you know, the sense of Chick-fil-A, their sense within themselves of having a mission, you know, of being ambassadors for a belief system, I think actually is part of what, um, you know, part of the reason that they do a good job with the things that they, they do well. Um, and yet, you know, 
hard not to feel bad. <laughs> uh, or at least it has been. It's interesting that they have really sought, like, you know, it, after the Fuhrer in 2012, they really were like, oh, you know, we're, we're going to cut back and not do this anymore. And then they everybody was like, oh, okay. Not everybody. Like, a lot of people, you know, um, who really care about these things and, and uh, are committed to, you know, those issues didn't, you know, they were like, I'll never go back to Chick-fil-A again. And I'm angry at all of you people who are continuing to go there. But most of America was like, meh, they said they stopped, but they didn't stop really. I mean, they just stopped giving to like the companies that were like, you're gay, stop being gay. They didn't do that anymore. But corporation, corporations like organizations like the fellowship of christian athletes group you know um which has in its uh in its rules like don't be gay um they kept giving to those and i think that they assumed that that would be uncontroversial because that wasn't the mission of it it is in some ways an interesting sort of uh window into the times where organizations that were sort of uncontroversial and uh, nobody would have given two thoughts to, you know, 15, 20 years ago have really become beyond the pale for those reasons now. To the point where now Chick-fil-A is just like, eh, we're done. You know, and now if we, our charitable giving is entirely about fighting homelessness and uh, making sure that people have food. And they've disassociated themselves entirely from like, uh, from organizations that have an overtly sort of religious, um, you know, bent to them, uh, because they're interested, they're they're serious about their expansion. Like their business people are, um, smart at what they're doing, <laughs> and they and they want to close the book on this. Uh, you know, the question is. Is that, you know, should should customers let them close the book on it? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I, I, I know people, I mean, I, I know people who still visit. Um, and I think you're right. Most, most of the people do it sort of apolitically. They're going for the sandwich and the experience. Yeah. And not, yeah. not attaching the politics to it. But I, I do know that, it, that there are, uh, because of the, the political story here, uh, people who will never darken the door, and I certainly understand that as well. I do understand that too. It gets weirdly complicated, though. I mean, the truth is, like, and it comes up again and again in in what we're doing here. As an industry, fast food is conservative, you know, um, and in fact, most of the uh, companies that we've talked about, like McDonald's or um, or Hardy slash Carl's Jr. have been um, big contributors to the Republican Party over the years. And it does sort of beg the question, like, uh, you know, Chick-fil-A, in fact, doesn't really contribute to political parties in that same overt way as did to these organizations that one could argue tangentially had uh, you know, um, an anti-LGBTQ position by default, at least post 2012, without that being the center of their their emphasis. 
And um, is that, you know, the question is, is that, uh, is that worse than the companies that like, you know, give to an institutional party that ends up supporting those same, you know, ends maybe in different ways and don't really come in for criticism because of it. It's an interesting thing. Anyway, big old quagmire with the Chick-fil-A, but their sandwiches are pretty good. So there you go. Yeah. All right, sir. We did it. Another we one in the books. It. I will see you again soon. Yeah, man. Hey there, don't leave just yet. If you've made it this far, please listen for just one more minute because we have something to share. It really means a lot that you took time to listen to today's episode and we really hope you enjoyed it. So what do we want to tell you? Well, we're here to let you know that we're here to serve you. If you have suggestions, ideas, possible guests, show topics, anything you'd like us to cover on future episodes of the Sweet Tea Shakespeare Hours, please let us know by sending feedback to ours, that's H-O-U-R-S, at SweetTeaShakespeare.com. We want this to be a conversation. We want to gather around a table with you and have a real conversation with you. We want to know what you want from this show. Ultimately, you will help decide what this show is and how it best serves you as we seek to build community and make space for wonder. Until next time.